0: We are continuing this morning in our series called Vital Signs to look at the earliest days of the church in those very days following the ascension of Christ as it is described in Acts chapter 2. Let's turn there together, if you would. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 37. I'm reading from the English Standard Version Acts 2, starting at verse 37. Let's stand in honor of God's word, shall we? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, brother, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need may the lord add his blessing to the reading of his word He may be seated we're zeroing in in this series in which we're each taking a turn thank you pastor chris for the opportunity To to dive into this particular part of this passage. At verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So how does this start? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who are they? They are the infant church, those who have turned to follow Christ during his public ministry or who have believed on him uh, in the days since his death, burial, and resurrection. And most notably, this includes the 3,000 that were added to the assembly on Pentecost. 3,000! This, this is the newborn church. It's a megachurch, folks. 3,000 added in one day. So what were they doing? What was this group doing? I mean, obviously there was quite a buzz. All of these people gathered in one place. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. That is, they were continually, steadfastly, intently attuned. They were purposeful. They were putting themselves eagerly under a place of authority, under a place of teaching. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They recognized that the apostles had authority and even more, that they had information. They had insight into the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's very likely that this group was full of people who had never personally met Jesus during his earthly ministry, especially when it comes to the 3,000 who were added. People came from all over. They were from all over the known world there and who were added at Pentecost, The apostles, therefore, were in a unique position of having literally followed in the footsteps of Jesus as he went about doing miracles and teaching, but mostly teaching. Teaching. That's what a rabbi did. He took to himself students, followers, disciples, and they would follow him literally everywhere. They would walk in his steps. They would walk behind him, Everywhere he went and they would receive instruction along the way. A good rabbi was an effective teacher. Now before we continue on that thought, I think it would be valuable and even timely as the school year is just coming to an end to consider what it means to be a teacher. What does it mean to be a teacher? Here's my attempt at defining teaching. Ready? The communication of information and ideas with the goal of imparting understanding and affecting the perspective of the person receiving instruction. Think about that. Teaching is communicating information and ideas with a goal in mind, and that goal is to impart understanding and to affect the perspective of the person who you are teaching. And this is where Jesus' problem really started. <laughs> That Jesus set himself apart from the -the run-of-the-mill rabbi by performing miracles is a given. We know that. That definitely got people's attention. But the simple fact of the matter is that if it were not for our Lord's bold teaching, the religious authorities, who would eventually demand his crucifixion, would hardly ever have taken note of him. Yes, they would eventually criticize him, for performing miracles on the Sabbath. Yes, they would eventually accuse him of using demonic power to perform his miraculous acts, but that was only because they had already decided that his teaching was a problem for them. Miracles change our present circumstances, but teaching deals with ideas, and ideas change us. They change how we perceive and how we interpret present and future events and circumstances. And under the right conditions, teaching threatens our status quo. Jesus boldly claimed his own deity, that he and the Father were one. And if that was not enough, he also pointed out the errors in the teaching and the actions of those same authorities, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and it was working. People were hearing the teaching of Jesus, and it was affecting them. Their understanding was increased, and their perspective was being changed. Let's take a minute to think about the teacher-student dynamic, okay? Um, Would you agree with me that good students make great teachers, Would you say that that's kind of axiomatic? Say yes if you agree with me. Yes, Yes, good students, good, I'm glad, because if not, I was going to have to preach another sermon. (laughs) Good students make great teachers, and one of the reasons this is so, I believe, is that good students ask a lot of questions. Now, I want you to think of someone that you've known in your life, okay, so think think of someone you've known who was like that, someone who had a knack of explaining things, a natural teacher, all right? And I'm going to ask you, did they ask a lot of questions? Okay, and you're going to say, yes, they did ask a lot, right? Let's try that. Did they ask a lot of questions? Yes. yes. No, 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 not. Yes, they did that. No. Say, yes, they did ask a lot. I didn't answer you, Caesar. I'm going with this. Did they ask a lot of questions? Yes, yes they did ask a lot. All right. Wow, why am I making you say that phrase? This is a little bit of social engineering here. It's just my way of teaching you a new word, the word of the day, and that word is didaskalos. This Greek word, didaskalos, get it, didaskalos? Okay, gonna take a deep breath. Dom thought that was funny. <laughs> this, <laughs> this Greek word means teacher. And as I've already said, a great teacher probably did ask a lot of questions. See what I did there? If nothing else, you will leave here today with a new wrinkle on your brain, and if so, I will have made a passable didaskalos for the day. But why does that word matter? Why am I obsessing on this Greek word? Is it just because Matthew feels like he needs to use a Greek word every time, you know? Here's why. It's very important that you understand the root of that word didasko in its various forms is behind two words that appear in our English New Testaments. Those words are teaching, both as a verb or gerund, right? The, the act of teaching and also the, the noun of what you're being taught, what is being taught. So those words are teaching and doctrine. If you are reading your New Testament and you see the word doctrine, this is your word. This is your word, Didasco. If you see the word teaching, this is your word with two possible exceptions depending on your translation where the word might be logos, which means word. Okay? But for the most part, when you see the word doctrine or teaching, it's the same word. It's the same word. Furthermore, and this is important, some translations lean in favor of using one English word over the other. Example, Mark 1... 21 to 22 in the King James and they went into Capernaum and straight away on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught and they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority and not as a scribe see that? taught Uh, some Bibles will say he was teaching and then you see doctrine same word Same word. One more time, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. English Standard Version says breathed out by God. And is profitable for, King James says, doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We all know that. ESV there says teaching. Okay, For doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You'll have everything you need. The King James consistently renders the noun form as doctrine throughout the Gospels, while other translations favor the word teaching, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but know that it is the same word and don't get hung up on that D word, doctrine. This is a crucial point, don't miss this. When we see doctrine, our tendency is to think, oh boy, here we go, this is getting academic now time to slip into my late Sunday morning nap, (laughs) to quote Pastor Chris, no, 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 don't do that. As the disciples followed Jesus' footsteps, he was not delivering dry academic lectures of no practical use to any normal person. He was teaching them. To say that he was teaching them doctrine would be redundant. You could work for the Department of Redundancy Department, right? You say, Jesus was teaching them doctrine. He was teaching them his teachings. He was teaching them how to live. He was teaching them how to think. He was teaching them who he was, who the Father was, and who they were, and what they needed to know and understand in order to be reconciled to God. He was teaching them what they must know before he was to leave them. And as any teacher can identify with our Lord in this fact, he was teaching them things that they would not begin to understand or appreciate until a much later time. But when that time would come, oh boy, would they need them. He was teaching them that he must go where they could not come. And in the next breath, he was teaching them that he would come again. He was teaching the multitudes on a hillside and the twelve along the way. He was teaching in towns and villages, in homes and in city gates, in the synagogue, in the temple. He was teaching men and women, young and old, rich and poor. He was teaching the Jew and the Samaritan, the priest and the prostitute, the tax collector and the fisherman. He was teaching. He was bearing witness to the Father, to an everlasting kingdom and to the coming home. Holy Spirit he was teaching them so they would know so they could live so they could follow so they could teach that is what he did for Jesus there was no such thing as a teachable moment <laughs> every moment was a teachable moment but there are a few that stand out for example look with me at Luke 19:45 to 48 Does that sound familiar? Back to Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The newborn church was hanging on the words of the teachings of those who were taught by the master. What made these 12 men worthy of having thousands devoting themselves to their teaching? They had followed him for three and a half years in the footsteps of our teacher who would become their savior and who is now their risen Lord, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. They were worthy of an audience, not because of who they were, but because their teacher, their Didaskalos, had taught them what they needed to know, what they needed to teach. To get things rolling as the church was born. Now, it is noteworthy that in the context of all that had happened in the second chapter of Acts, right, where they had gotten up and they had spoken, not in, blah, 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 they spoke in. They spoke in real languages, known languages that were not known to them. Do you understand that? This was no untie my bow tie, who stole my Honda, who should have bought a Hyundai? This is speaking in foreign languages that they did not know. This was a sign to the world that God was working a new work Not that he was going to make everybody sound funny, but that he was going to reverse, in a sense, what he had done in the Old Testament where he confused the languages of men and spread us out and made an obstacle there for the news of who he was to go forth into the world, and he dealt with the specific people, and now in his new covenant, he's dealing with the world, and so he's going to make sure that everybody understands. If you're here today, and you don't speak, could you imagine if we could do that on a Sunday morning? Get up and say, if you're here this morning, and it's your first time with us, and you're from a country that we've never spoken, we trust that our sound system is correctly translating for you, (laughs) that would be a little bit of Star Trek stuff for us, Right? But in this very important moment in the history of the church, God gave a special sign for a specific purpose to show the world that the gospel was for every man, every woman who could hear it in their tongue and who could believe on him and be saved. So, in the context of all of that that had gone on, It's interesting to note that the thousands, this had just happened, the thousands were not devoting themselves to pursuing the ability to speak in other tongues or even to heal. They were devoting themselves of all things to doctrine, to the teaching of the apostles. Before they were called apostles, these men were just disciples. Students of the teacher Jesus as he prepared them for his death and resurrection and to be instrumental in the formation of the church. He also taught them with a more long-term goal in mind. Jesus' final command inextricably links baptism and teaching to the mission of making disciples. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age, he taught them to teach. And he placed that task at the very heart of the mandate to all who would follow him to make disciples. There is, listen, there is nothing more practical than the teaching of our Lord. As sentient beings, there's another uh, <laughs> sci fi term is where we hear that used, thinking creatures, as creatures who think, we are always interpreting our surroundings. Uh, other people, um, traffic. I tell my kids when I'm teaching them to drive. Uh, what, what do I tell you about? What do I tell you about the percentages, right? But I tell you, she's like, oh, Abby's still learning, and and um, bless her. <laughs> I teach them that driving is 10% rules of the road, 45% physics, 45% psychology. You got to be able to read the conditions of the road you gotta be able to you gotta be able to estimate or approximate and give a pretty good idea what that other nut on the road is it's about to do in front of you, right? You've gotta be able to read those conditions or the rules of the road, I mean, you know, I mean you know the rules of the road, but they might not. You know, sometimes the rules of the road don't apply when it's icy. <laughs> sometimes the rules of physics, the normal rules of physics don't apply, or what we think of as the normal rules. There's always rules applying. But we we as thinking creatures, we have to interpret. That's what we do. We will always seek to understand based on what we already know. But in the absence of facts, in the absence of good information to work with, we are left to intuition, to follow our gut or our emotions. And That's not always a bad thing. You know, face it, the flight response does save lives from time to time. <laughs> but as helpful as intuition can be when we find ourselves in a bind, we are always better off knowing what we're getting into in the first place. When the first of the month rolls around, it really doesn't matter whether we feel as if we have enough money to cover the mortgage check. (laughs) Either we do or we do not. And that is why we study arithmetic. Nobody calls it draftology or the doctrine of personal checking. right? (laughs) So we just accept it. We need to know how to add and subtract. We need to know how to balance a checkbook so that we know if it's okay to write that check. In his song, Maker of Noses, I love that title, the late Christian singer-songwriter Rich Mullins wrote, Do I turn to the left? Do I turn to the right? When I turn to the world, they give me this advice. They said, Boy, you just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. they said follow your nose but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head and they said boy you just follow your dreams but my dreams are only misty notions but the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams he's the one I have chosen and I will follow him amen amen And so, sound doctrine, the teaching of Scripture, informs us for daily living. But of equal and arguably even greater importance, it also protects us from false teaching. This is where another D word comes in, discernment. Discernment is nothing more than the ability to distinguish between truth and error, between fact and fiction, between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. But make no mistake, error, fiction, and heresy, like truth, fact, and orthodoxy, don't just happen. They are teachings, and they all have their proponents, their teachers, their adherents. When you hear a teaching, are you prepared to evaluate it in the light of Scripture That's the mandate of 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The danger is real, and the stakes have never been higher. Christians, by the millions, are falling prey to the heresy-laden book and now feature film, The Shack, Not merely shrugging at its staggering barrage of false teachings, but claiming that it has helped them to understand God. No. No. It most certainly has not helped you to understand God. The God of the shack is an idol, a grotesque distortion, and by no means the God of this Bible. Ephesians 4, 11-14 Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now listen to this. When the author of The Shack could not find a publisher to print his book, he started his own publishing outfit and named it Wind Blown Media. Look at this verse. Carried about by every wind of Doctrine. Put right on the back cover, windblown media. And I, listen, if, if you've read it, if you've enjoyed it, I'm not here to attack you today. I'm here to wake you up. There have been a lot of great people I've known, people who I consider to be very strong in their faith and very knowledgeable of the Word of God who've gotten pulled into this book. I don't understand it, I don't understand the deception, but I know it's real. And you need to go to the Word and see what it says. Lest you think you're safe here on the edge of the Bible belt, there are pastors right here in town who will tell you that you'd better not leave their church because they are your connection to the vine. Does that jive with what we have studied right here in this room? Another essential thing that doctrine, that biblically faithful teaching does for us, it prepares us for the inevitable trials of life. For the call from the home office that our branch is being closed. For the bedside visit from a doctor that he's referring us for an oncology consultation. For the text from a spouse that they are seeking a divorce. For the knock on the door by a man in a uniform whose facial expression will change our world without a word. In those moments, one of two things is going to happen. Our emotions are going to shape our beliefs or our beliefs are going to shape our emotions. In a nutshell, that's the power. That's the power of the teaching of the Word of God. That's the value of doctrine. It just doesn't get any more practical than that. I am persuaded that this is why the Apostle Paul spends the first three quarters of his epistle to the Roman church laying down a foundation of teaching, doctrine, before moving on to practical application. Three quarters of the book. And he says, therefore... (laughs) He follows the same pattern in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, laying a necessary groundwork in doctrine and then pausing for therefore before applying it to specific areas of concern. The early church and the apostles understood the importance of having a foundation of biblical truth, of biblical teaching that was both deep and wide. 1 Timothy 3.16 contains what I believe to be a peek at an early hymn of the church. It reads, listen to this, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Is it any wonder then that the importance of doctrine would be near to your music pastor's heart, (laughs) when we open God's Word together in this room every week, I want you to know that your pastor has studied diligently to be prepared to open and explain it to you. During the week, he and I discuss the texts in view so that our musicians can lead us in songs that carefully connect with the text. That's intentional. Preparing us to receive God's truth and also reinforcing the truth that we are receiving. That's the beauty of music. It has a way of getting into your head, of sticking with you throughout the week. Most of the time, The words of the Sunday morning message fade by midweek. I'm probably being generous, right? But music gives us hooks on which to hang the principles of the message, the truths of the word. I have sat at the bedside of countless saints at Jordan's Bank preparing to enter the presence of the Lord. Never, has one of them quoted a sermon. But songs of worship often rise in those moments. Hymns old and new, the truths of Scripture rendered in meter and set to music provide comfort in those tender moments. Martin Luther put it this way, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in all the world. Or perhaps you'd prefer the Apostle Paul. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And that is why... That is why I consider the curation of our music library here at Faith Baptist Church to be among my most sober responsibilities as I serve this body. The music that we sing together in worship becomes a part of who we are. Those words had better be true. Someone is always teaching you there's not a moment that goes by if you're interacting with any language if you're interacting with any image there's not a moment that goes by where someone isn't trying to teach you something trying to convey something to you this doesn't mean we have to sit in the little closet somewhere we've got to engage the world We have to take the gospel to it. It's by hearing that they believe. Amen? But who will we allow to be our teachers? A news anchor? A friend? Who will we allow to form our perspective? A co-worker? Who will we allow to shape our worldview? Netflix? Netflix? some pop culture icon. I got to go back, got to go back to Romans 12. After spending this whole first 11 chapters laying down his teaching, laying down doctrine. Doctrine is teaching, laying down doctrine. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world push you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. Okay, one last word. Ready? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but y'all don't have an apostle. Your pastor's desperately need and sincerely covet your prayers. You have no idea how much it means to us to know that you are praying for us and that you are faithful to examine our teaching, whether it's in word, in song, or in our actions, that you're examining us against the scriptures We are not superhuman. We're we're just normal Joes. We struggle with the same things with which you struggle. And none of us has some special direct connection to the vine that you can't have. We open this word with trembling hands. We ask the Holy Spirit to give us insight. We read it and read it again and again and again and again and again. Pastor Critch is preaching a particular passage. I read that passage sometimes 20, 30 times before I start picking songs. That's not some special skill. That's not some special gift that only I have. You can do it too, and you need to. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. As the four of us have the opportunity to share, um, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Our ministry is faithful to the word because he holds us to that and because you hold us to that and because it gives life and because it protects us from false teaching and because it prepares us for difficult moments and because it equips us for our daily walk. Let's pray. Oh God you are you are so merciful in our mutiny against you you have provided a way of salvation You have called us out from the world. You have given us new life. You have given us your Holy Spirit that we may discern. You have loved us enough to write it down and to give us a helper. We praise you, God. We thank you. We love you. Help us never to look on this book as some dry old thing for academic application. Help us to find life in the truth of your word. In our Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.